Hello, everybody, and welcome to the JWB Fantasy Football Podcast. He's Justin. I'm Wyatt. And on today's show, we're going to be finishing our wide receiver breakdown and doing some NFL news as usual. Our first piece of news is that we have an actual deadline for the opt-out, which is going to be Thursday at 4 p.m. Speaking of opt-outs, we've had a good amount of them since our last show. The main one is Damien Williams, which... I actually did a little bonus episode that you can check out on that one. We had Alan Hearns, Marquise Lee. We weren't really expecting much out of these guys. Juwan James, the right tackle from Denver. Matt Lacoste, the tight end who was supposed to start for the Patriots. But, you know, they did draft two tight ends. Devin Asiasi and Dalton Keene. And then C.J. Mosley, which I think is the biggest of all of the opt-outs in the past week because... The Jets' defense already lost Jamal Adams, and now they lose C.J. Mosley. I mean, those are two huge hits to the defense. Maybe I, they're already kind of bad. Maybe now they're going to have to pass even more, and they won't really be able to run at all. Do you think that has any fantasy impact over there in uh, New York? I actually do. That's one that really stood out to me because I think exactly what you said is the case there, uh, that now I have to look at the range where I had Le'Veon Bell and definitely position him behind guys like David Johnson. Uh, we had a little bit of that discussion in our running back episode, um, but I think that most of the fantasy community has Le'Veon Bell ahead of guys like David Johnson. I think you kind of have to flip that on its head a little bit now. We were already unsure what we were going to get from Le'Veon Bell. Now I'm worried that the one thing he had going for him, which was a ton of opportunity, is no longer going to be there. Um you and I don't expect the Jets to be very good this year. And I think not only are they not going to be good, but now they're going to be a bad team that has to throw the ball too much to weak receivers. And none of that bodes well for Le'Veon Bell. Um, I'm also going to be very interested to see what's developing with the Patriots because it has just been a disaster for them how many opt-outs they've had in the past week and a half. And this one in particular with the cost caught my attention because then I thought, Man, who are they even going to have at wide receiver? If you think back to our very first, I, I think it was our inaugural episode, uh, we discussed a little bit about David Njoku and his ask for a trade. And I had mentioned the Patriots as a team that I thought may need depth and help at the tight end position. Now that's definitely true. So I'll be looking to see if they grab a veteran off the market like uh, Delaney Walker. I thought maybe they would have Jordan Reed, but if I'm not mistaken, I think he's now a part of the 49ers, right? That is true. He did sign with the 49ers, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, like the first, when you first see, see that, you're really confused because you're thinking, well, they have George Kittle. Why would they sign Jordan Reed? But the more I thought about it, I thought it actually made a ton of sense because Debo Samuel's recovering from the injury. They're not sure how healthy he is going to be to start the season. The rest of the receiver court is basically inexperienced and unproven. And Jordan Reed is a pretty low risk, high reward type of player for them because they don't actually need him, but he could be really good. So now they just have this like veteran presence to be another receiving option that Kyle Shanahan can, you know, scheme. George Kittle is an amazing blocker and they tend to keep him into block a lot. George Kittle actually doesn't run as many routes as you'd think for somebody who has been as productive as he has. So it's possible. It just means that now, even when George Kittle gets to stay in, Jordan Reed gets to go run run routes and 
he may have some like streamer appeal at some point in the season. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's not a particular group of tight ends in fantasy football that we see a ton of depth to. So you're right. If Reed emerges as almost like a decent flex option wide receiver, he probably is going to get a lot of love at the tight end position, especially for whatever period of the year he's healthy. So I do think that's a bit of an interesting signing. I I do want to note, though, I don't think it affects George Kittle's value in the least bit. I think he's still the same guy. This doesn't hurt him at all. I think it's just a depth thing for them. Yeah, they do completely different things within offenses, especially with the little note that you dropped about how many routes he doesn't run. George Kittle, that is. So uh, I think you're right. I can't see them changing how often he goes out to catch passes. Uh, But the more help that they have, the better it is for him to find seams and find open space. So in a sense, any any help that they can get after the injury to Debo Samuel is is good news for people who are high on George Kittle. And it's funny you mentioned about David Joku earlier and requesting a trade because, well, he's walked back that trade. Now he seems to be all in in playing for the Browns, uh, It's which is kind of weird. I'm assuming he got to the building and the Browns were like, listen, we do actually really want you on this team. We want you to play for us. We have plans for you. And he was like, oh, all right. I guess I'm in again. What do you think? I think that's kind of exactly what we thought previously, that it didn't make a whole lot of sense for him to ask for a trade given these circumstances. And I would assume that they made it very clear to him, not only that they had a role for him, but that they weren't interested in trading him. And I think maybe a frank conversation with his agent about how he stands a chance to increase his value at the end of the year, as opposed to what it is right now could only help his future plans moving uh, on from here. So I hope it works out really well. Like we do expect to see two tight end looks quite often out of the Browns offense. And there is a place for him there if he can step up and perform. Yeah, I I think you're right there. I think there probably was some uh, self-realization about what was actually happening and realized, and he realized that uh, his value was basically as low as it could get at this point. And the only way for it to go up was to, play this season for the Browns. I agree. Our last piece of news is that Dalvin Cook did report to camp on time, which is basically what we kind of thought was going to happen. We never really thought that he was going to actually hold out. We talked about how the new CBA makes it so that it's much harder for players to do so. But it is important to note that he did show up on time. Yeah, I was hoping for that because now I think we can just officially put to bed any discussion of dropping his value or his position in drafts because of his potential issues with his contract and that whole situation. Uh, So I think we're good there. We can just go ahead and solidify that Dalvin Cook belongs somewhere around the fifth or sixth pick in fantasy drafts, regardless of what format you're playing in. Yeah, now we've had him ranked at RB5 overall 5, too, as well, this whole time. Do you still just feel that's just where he belongs? Yeah, I do. So I I don't think even in a world where there was zero 
considerations about his contract that I was going to put him ahead of Zeke or Barkley or McCaffrey. So he firmly falls outside of those three. Uh, after that, I think it depends on format for me. I had mentioned previously that PPR and half PPR, I can see why you would want to take Alvin Kamara or Michael Thomas in those circumstances. But in leagues that very heavily favor touchdown and in standard leagues, I might be willing to take him as high as four now. I do think that I like Dalvin Cook more than I like Derrick Henry for this particular season. So maybe I was hedging my bets a little bit, thinking five or six just in case something goes wrong. But I have no concerns on that front with him now. So I think anywhere in between picks four and six, I'm evaluating if he's my favorite option there. Yeah, I think it makes some sense where in standard, you might want him over Alvin Kamara. I I personally think I'd still stick with Alvin Kamara, but I think that it would make sense if someone took him. I wouldn't have any problem with it. Moving on to our wide receiver breakdown, continuing our episode from last week. If you're joining us for the first time, what we've been doing is we've been looking at positions and looking at the players being drafted in certain rounds. Right now we're doing wide receivers who are being drafted in rounds 5 through 10 based on Fantasy Pros PPR ADP. PPR is point per reception. ADP is average draft position. We're going to be talking about their Fantasy Pros ECR, which is the expert consensus ranking versus our own JWB rankings. And the first player we're going to talk about is DJ Shark, who is ECR 21, JWB 18. Yeah, so we're obviously a little bit higher on DJ Shark than I think the rest of the public is. And I've said this many times, I think, at this point, but I can't quite understand why. I loved what I saw at a Shark last year. He was one of my favorite free agent pickups after he started to emerge. And I thought he did did great on all of the teams last year that I had shares of him. So I, I would have loved to have had him in our previous episode, but where he was being taken in drafts kind of artificially dropped him into the second episode here. Uh, but this is where I kind of want to highlight both for DJ Shark as well as DK Metcalf that we're going to discuss here shortly that I like these guys ahead of the Keenan Allens and Cortland Suttons that we had previously discussed at the end of last week's episode. Now, for me, Shark is interesting, especially in standard leagues, because I think he's got the ability to catch a lot of touchdowns and post a lot of yardage. Um, I think there is some concern to him, Wyatt, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that he could take a little bit of a step back in PPR. But I think what I've read on that seems a little unwarranted because I do expect the Jags to be bad enough to have to throw the ball quite a bit this year. And I think that even with a decent array of weapons that Gardner Minshew has, they're still going to have to go to Shark early and often. Uh, I've been seeing him going in about the middle of the sixth round in most drafts, right around 55 56. So about the same place that you see DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, he's coming off the board. Uh, And I think that he could have numbers very similar to a lot of the guys that we talked about at the end of last week's episode. So I view Shark as one of those really nice options where you can get him as a wide receiver too, but you're drafting him where most everyone else is looking at flex players and seeking out that kind of value at the wide receiver position is one thing that I think makes for very successful teams. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that you'd think with a player like DJ Shark that he might be worse in PPR because he's not going to catch a ton of passes. He's more of a a big play receiver. But last year, he was 16 in standard and 17 in PPR in wide receiver standings for fantasy points. So 
he actually is still just fine in PPR. I think that's a testament to his ability and his big play ability. And I think it's important to note that he actually finished the season pretty pretty weak, but that was because he was suffering from an ankle injury that actually forced him out of the last week of the year and hampered him for weeks 15 and 16. So his numbers last year could have even been even better if he hadn't suffered that injury. And what's important to me is that the Jags are a bad team. I mean, their defense has basically disintegrated over the last year. So you expect that they're going to have to throw the ball a lot. So I think DJ Shark is really just going to feast this year. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I really have looked to pick him up in a lot of drafts, and I haven't really had much trouble doing that at this point, which I think bodes well for you know my draft philosophy this year. But I've been able to wait and take him in rounds five or six. I think that it should be clear to everybody at this point that we have been preaching, uh, making sure that you have at least three running backs in your first five rounds. We're kind of recommending three running backs in the first four rounds. So if you're going to go with that strategy, right, it means that by the time I get to the fifth round, I'm looking at wide receiver two. Uh, and if at any point during the draft, a quarterback or a tight end of value could really fall to you. Uh, we did our mock draft bonus episode where Patrick Mahomes just happened to fall into our lap. And it heavily shifted what we did at the wide receiver position. Uh, and I think you have to be prepared when you do your drafts for a lot of variables and makeups that could influence how you want to handle your decision-making process. And one position where it's a lot easier to not take someone early because of the depth at that position is wide receiver. So if you find yourself looking to grab someone like Kittle or Kelsey or Mahomes or Lamar Jackson earlier in drafts, identifying like three late wide receivers that you're a huge fan of could mean a lot to how you feel about your team at the end of the day. Uh, and Shark strikes me as a guy that you could get in all of those sort of scenarios a little bit later and really capitalize off of. So our next receiver is DK Metcalf, as you alluded to earlier, ECR 25, JWB 21. Yeah, another situation where we're a bit higher than the rest of the fantasy community. Um, I will say here, though, interestingly, that although we are higher on him than most experts are, I don't expect DK Metcalf to be available any later than the sixth round in most drafts. His average draft position is higher than Sharks' average draft position, and it's higher than Tyler Lockett's. He's actually going around 52 or 53, which indicates that in some drafts, he's going to go in the fifth round, and in some drafts, he's going to go in the sixth round. But DK Metcalf, because he is, right, the shiny new toy, and it has that sort of feel and appeal to it that people love to take within the fantasy community, it's difficult to not have at least one person in your league that loves DK Metcalf and is willing to take him in the fourth round. So here's another place where I think you have to be willing to go up and get him if you're sure that you want him. Uh, I was a huge fan of his rookie season, especially the way that he came on towards the end of the season. And I do expect Seattle to throw more this year and kind of unlock the offense for Russell Wilson. And DK Metcalf would have to be a huge part of that. He is one who, where I felt like it was unfair of DJ Shark to knock him in a PPR system, I think here it is fair maybe to knock DK down a little bit in a PPR or a half PPR system. I don't think that the volume of catches is going to be there to make him a massive, massive asset, although I do believe that he could have good wide receiver two numbers. 
I don't necessarily know that his ceiling is as high in PPR or half PPR, but I do think he's a wonderful receiving option in standard because I think at the end of the day, even if he's only going to give you three or four catches, my expectation is that like one is probably a huge play and one could easily be a touchdown. And that really, really appeals to me, um, especially with the volume of throws that I think we're going to see in that Seattle offense. Yeah, the thing that stood out for me with DK Metcalf was that rookie wide receivers don't succeed this quickly in Seattle. It just doesn't happen. And DK Metcalf had 100 targets. He had 900 yards, seven touchdowns as a rookie in Seattle in that run-first offense. Like, as a rookie, you have to think that if he takes any sort of a jump, he's in for a pretty big year. And when he came to the NFL, he was known as somewhat of a limited raw prospect, uh, physically gifted, but didn't have a very big route tree. And while he did have more of a route tree than you'd expect his first year, if he improves that even a little bit, I mean, the sky's kind of the limit for DK Metcalf. And uh, the other thing that stuck out for me was that he only actually had a catch percentage of 58% last year. And Russell Wilson is such a good quarterback that his wide receivers don't catch at that low of a percentage. All of them always catch a higher percentage of that because Russell Wilson is just so good at putting the ball where it needs to go that I expect it to go up. So, like you said, Seattle will probably throw more this year. So we could really see DK Metcalf take a nice jump this year. Yeah, I think so too. And I'm maybe a little more willing to invest on him taking a jump because I can do that in the sixth round as opposed to maybe hoping uh, a guy like McLaurin is going to take a big jump or a guy like AJ Green is going to rebound or maybe even hoping that like Keenan Allen is going to give me anything similar to what I've seen from him in his heyday. You know, all of those guys might have the same sort of floor to ceiling ratio but there might be something to be said about the fact that even if dk metcalf's ceiling is similar to some of these other guys maybe the percentage likelihood that he gets to that ceiling is a little bit more in his favor because he's going to have an you know a second year breakout if things go the way we want it to uh so he is very very interesting dj and dk those are two names i'm definitely looking to have at least one of them as the wide receiver two or the wide receiver three on all of my teams this year yeah, I think you're kind of right about him having like a higher percentage chance of like the breakout. And really, I just attribute that to the he has Russell Wilson. Some of these other guys don't have that. You know, Russell Wilson is I I would say he's got to be a top three QB in the NFL, just actual skill wise. So just having that like he could easily explode this year. Yeah, I agree. Our next receiver is A.J. Green, who's ECR 30, JWB 22. And I'm just going to say, I was not expecting for us to be this much higher than the the consensus is on A.J. Green. What do you think? I thought that we were very skeptical on him. And I think we've tried to maintain a lot of skepticism on him. And somehow, despite our hope to temper expectations, we've still ended up with AJ Green at 22. So I I think I'm happy with where we ended up having him ranked. Uh, It is a little bit of a call your own shot sort of mentality when it comes to AJ Green, but I have every reason to believe that he is 
sharing a trait that I had talked about in regards to Odell Beckham, which is he is both motivated and healthy for the first time and what could have what could be a very long time. I think that that team is going to have no choice but to throw the ball. And I think they really do want to throw the ball. I think they want to see what Burrow's made of and start to get that offense to a more run and gun, high tempo uh, sort of situation. So all of that to me kind of suggests, Wyatt, that if you look at Cincinnati and you think that Burrow is going to do well within that offense, you almost have no choice but to believe at that point that all the mouths are going to get fed, that Tyler Boyd's going to give you flex-like numbers, that A.J. Green is going to give you wide receiver two and flex-type numbers, that Joe Mixon's going to be a number one running back. right? I think all those guys are going to eat within this offense, and I'm happy to maybe take a shot at that being the case. right? So we're without getting too far ahead of ourselves, uh, one thing that I want to make sure that I mention here is that part of the reason why I think you and I are higher on AJ Green is because his potential or the ceiling that we could get out of him is a lot better than what I think I'm going to get out of Devontae Parker or Stephon Diggs or T.Y. Hilton or Michael Gallup or Tyler Boyd on his own team, right? So we're starting to hit the part of the wide receiver pole where you have to split hairs and determine if all these guys are virtually the same, who's one that might separate all the way to the top? And we know based on talent level that that could easily be AJ Green. I also don't know if this isn't going to be the best quarterback play that he's seen in seven years. That's a really good point. So what could happen if that turns out to be the case, right? And I'm just thinking of AJ Green of years past. So maybe for me, it's also a little bit of hoping that some of his recent struggles and injury issues that he's had have almost served to where you can take AJ Green and maybe subtract three years off of his age because he doesn't have the wear and tear that a lot of other guys have despite his age because he spent a lot of time kind of rehabbing and preparing. And if he is healthy right now, which by all indications he is, we can expect to have a, a pretty good season out of him if he can even get to just his career averages. Um, last thing I want to mention here on AJ Green is that he is one where I think you could potentially wait on him a little bit. If you really like AJ Green, you are able to get him usually towards the end of round seven. So the experts have him at uh, like 28 to 30, depending on where you're looking at it. And guys like Hilton and Parker and McLaurin have all been going ahead of him. So I do prefer DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, and DJ Shark. But after that group of guys that's been going at the beginning of round six, if I can't get one of them, I've almost been thinking to myself, well, you know what? I'm just going to hang back here and I'm going to go for someone like AJ Green, like a full round later. And that's worked out for me in most instances. I think you nailed it right on the head when you talked about his ceiling. I mean, this is AJ Green. He was a perennial top 10 wide receiver in fantasy for an odd number of years. And yeah, I mean, he did get injured in 2018. He hasn't played since then. We all know that. But we also know that he's coming into this season fully healthy. The Bengals signed him to a franchise tag, which is $17.5 million. They didn't have to do that. They chose to pay A.J. Green $17.5 million to come back and play this year. So they, you know they think very highly of him. He's extremely talented, and you, as you said, Joe Burrow might be the best quarterback he's actually played with because all he has is Andy Dalton so far, and Andy Dalton was never thought of as some great quarterback. Joe Burrow could be better than Andy Dalton year one. 
So, yeah, I mean, there is risk, obviously. He's coming up this giant layoff, but he's A.J. Green. He could be a top 10 receiver this year. And as someone being drafted as wide receiver three, I'll take that chance. I want in on that. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's just because we haven't seen much out of him recently that he's fallen that far down in drafts. But listen, like I've had years in fantasy football where I've had no choice but to drop guys into free agency that I've drafted in the third, fourth, fifth round. Like we've all been there at some point. So like, why not take a shot on a guy like AJ Green that's coming out in round seven that has that kind of ceiling? In most cases, you're not getting somebody that has that high of a ceiling after rounds three, four, sometimes round five, depending on who you're looking at. So I'm I'm very comfortable being this high on him. Uh, I think it's just a case where if you're drafting smart, if you look at your team and you realize that AJ Green is your second or third receiver, try and pick more receivers shortly after that so that if you want to kind of play it safe and maybe not start with him out of the gate and just let him sit on the bench for week one and week two while you evaluate you know, how realistic his production is going to be, that seems like a very workable scenario. Again, there is a ton of wide receiver depth, so taking a guy like A.J. Green and then planning around not having to play him week in and week out is very, very doable this year. Yeah, that's a good point you make about, you know, positioning yourself so that you're not relying on AJ Green. And really, I mean, that's what he's being drafted that way. He, he's being drafted that you don't have to rely on him. And that's why I think it's best to take him where we have him because of his potential and the fact that you don't have to rely on him even at this spot. Yeah, it really does make it even more appealing. Coming up next, we've got Terry McLaurin, who's ECR 23 and JWB 23. Yeah, see, I don't know too much about McLaurin. This is one area where I'm going to kind of have to default to you. Uh, I've seen the massive, massive big play highlights on YouTube, as I hope we all have. Uh, But outside of that, I hadn't really paid too much attention to the Redskins offense last year. So I missed a little bit of the emergence of Terry McLaurin. And I personally view him as more of a risky option this year because of the fact that he's tied to Washington and Dwayne Haskins and everything that comes along with that franchise. So this this is a spot where I don't know that his likelihood to hit his ceiling is that much different than his likelihood to hit his floor. And I also think that his floor is about as low as his ceiling is high. And that's made me steer clear of him. I I view a lot of other people in this area like Stephon Diggs and Marvin Jones as guys who are much safer options. Uh, So I don't have any shares of Terry McLaurin in any teams or any mock drafts that I've done. What do you think about adding him at this range of the draft? I think this is a good spot for him because, again, like we talked about A.J. Green before, you're drafting him in a position where you don't have to rely on him, but he has a giant ceiling, as you spoke of. Um, I think when Terry McLaurin got to the NFL, no one expected him to be as talented as he ended up being, but he really wowed uh, last year with his ability. But like you said, he's tied to Dwayne Haskins, who is just not good. Um there, it, it's really easy to, like you said, go on YouTube. While you can find his highlights, you can also find the lowlights of Dwayne Haskins missing him or making a bad throw and Terry McLaurin just being so good that he manages to catch the ball anyways. I There's one play in particular I can remember in my head where he was running a slant to, to the end zone and Dwayne Haskins just completely missed him. And Terry McLaurin basically made a one-handed catch to still get the touchdown. 
like I said, he's he's very talented on that terrible team last year in 14 games. He had just over 900 yards and seven touchdowns. And there really is no other option on that team receiving wise. I mean, they don't really have a tight end to speak of. Their number two receiver is probably Steven Sims at this point, who was also a rookie last year, but wasn't nearly as impressive as McLaurin. I mean, it's possible you get nearly a 30% target share on this team, but I'm worried that a 30% target share from Dwayne Haskins means nothing, you know? Yeah, and I don't know if I'm willing to take that risk when there are so many other options that are available here. I understand why people like him. I just think, again, that this is a situation where the fact that he is the shiny new toy is playing a little too much in his favor. And I think that this is just one of those situations where because people aren't as familiar with him, they assume that this giant second step is going to come forth from him. And we don't always know that that's going to be the case. Uh, And it makes me have a little bit of trepidation there. I have a lot of statistical evidentiary reasons that I think DK Metcalf ought to take a step forward in his second year. And I can't really find that type of hard evidence for McLaurin when his passes are coming from Dwayne Haskins and there's a new coach with new roles and all kinds of off the field turmoil in that organization. And none of it adds up to me to create a very high likelihood that he hits the ceiling that people hope to have out of him. So I I recommend exercising a little more caution in this particular spot, Let someone else in your draft take McLaurin and you focus on some other options. Yeah, I I think you're right that, you know, we're counting on a second year jump for Terry McLaurin the same way that we're counting on a second year jump for DK Metcalf. But as you pointed out, I think that there's more actual evidence to point to that it'll happen for Metcalf than it would for McLaurin. Yeah. Our next receiver is Stefan Diggs, who is ECR 27 and JWB 25. I kind of like what I think he's going to do in Buffalo's offense. Stefan Diggs doesn't have to go out and give me eight catches for 75 yards and a touchdown every other week in every game to return value to me on where he's being taken in drafts, right? So the comparison that I have seen thus far is here's what John Brown has done in this offense. So let's project what we're going to get out of Stefan Diggs in that offense. And one thing that I really like about your particular approach to this, Wyatt, is that you have taken that sort of method, but have also done it while understanding that historically the route running, the catch percentage, the finesse of Stefan Diggs is substantially better than John Brown and kind of projected what Stefan Diggs ought do in those circumstances. And what it tells me is that he's going to finish the year as a wide receiver too, which is more or less what he did in Minnesota the past few seasons. But he's being drafted almost like a mid to low end flex. And I think it's because when people think Buffalo, they think of a strong defensive team with a slow, methodical offense. And I don't think that that's fair. I think the reason that people feel that way is because that's how Buffalo used to be traditionally. But what you're looking at now is a team that is not necessarily slow and methodical. You just have to remember that when they get in the red zone, their number one option is Josh is Josh Allen and his legs. But that's okay because Stefan Diggs is not a guy like Devin Singletary where his return of touchdowns is what determines his value. I want him to have enough big plays that his weak games of two, three, four catches can be offset by the fact that one of them was a 75-yard bomb that made it a worthwhile week. 
But then when he has six or seven catches a game, one of them is a bomb that makes him go off. And I think that's what you're going to see out of Stefan Diggs this year. So you have to be willing to take that Amari Cooper, Tyreek Hill, boom bust approach to Stefan Diggs. But if I'm looking at places where I can maximize his opportunity, I do know that he's going to see an extremely depleted Patriots team twice this year. A Dolphins defense that doesn't necessarily scare me twice. And a Jets defense that is now without their two best players twice. So off the top of my head, there's six matchups that I think are favorable for me to put Diggs in as wide receiver two or a flex and just roll with it. And the big play opportunity is going to be there even in tough matchups. Yeah, for me, this is real simple. And you kind of pointed towards it. Last year, John Brown on the same Bills team. He had 115 targets, 72 catches, just over 1,000 yards, six touchdowns. He was good enough for wide receiver 20 in PPR. And I don't think anybody has any illusions about who's better between Stephon Diggs and John Brown. Stephon Diggs has a career catch percentage of 68.4. John Brown's is 52.9. Diggs is almost 16 percentage points better than John Brown in career catch percentage. I mean— just give him the same targets that John Brown had last year, and he will be, be better than John Brown. He will be a solid wide receiver number two. Now, his ceiling is capped. I don't think, you know, Stefan Diggs has any chance of being wide receiver one this year because the volume probably just won't be there. But I think that you're going to get a solid wide receiver two when you draft Stefan Diggs. Yeah, see, I agree with that completely. And he is going after. T.Y. Hilton and Terry McLaurin on the average draft position board. So if I can pass the uncertainty that we just talked about with McLaurin and the enigma that is Devontae Parker and know that I can wait and get Stefan Diggs later, I'm very, very happy with that sort of return at this position in the draft. I would be shocked if he doesn't end up as a top 20 wide receiver. He, he ought finish somewhere in the teens in that offense, but he's being drafted faithfully at 25 or later. And again, like that's really all that I'm looking for. If I can have each person that I draft finish about a round or two higher than where I took them, I've done a great job. And Stefan Diggs seems like one of the most likely prospects this year to finish out at a better spot than where I took him at. Our next receiver is Devontae Parker, who's ECR 24. JWB 27. I am very, very skeptical on Devontae Parker. I don't know what you feel about his particular situation, but the normal questions that everyone else has in regards to him, I have too. Why has he been such a mess up until various parts of last year? Uh, Who's going to throw him the ball throughout the year? And if Fitzpatrick turns into Tua, what will that look like when Tua throws him the ball, right? Those are all the normal questions. But I personally have remained a bit more skeptical because since moving to the South Florida area and hearing a lot of the local radio opinion on Devontae Parker, the things that I've heard about him in the local press have scared me even more, which is soft and not that motivated. And the things that I've heard people say about Devonte Parker suggest that he isn't going to hit the ceiling that I hope he would have in my mind. And that worries me and makes me steer clear of him. Uh, he's one of the few guys along with people like Sony Michelle and Darius Geist that are actually on my do not draft list. 
So I categorically will not take Devontae Parker because I don't see any scenario in which I would trust putting him into a flex position. Uh, but I do think that I'm kind of heavily an outlier on that one side. I assume that you have to have some much warmer feelings about him. I don't know if they're that much warmer than you. I, I think this is another player where we've kind of said this before, where we just have so many questions where it just starts to add up to where we're not really willing to take them where they're going in drafts. And we'll only take them if they drop a round or two past that point. Um, Devontae Parker, he was supposed to be, you know, this great receiver when he came into the league. He was a first-round pick, and he was a complete bust before last year. And I think he really benefited from Ryan Fitzpatrick being the quarterback for most of the year where Ryan Fitzpatrick just loves to go out and chuck it at his receivers. He doesn't care about coverage. He doesn't care what's happening. He will give his guys a chance to go up and get the ball, which Devontae Parker is good at. He's a hyper athlete. He's very big. He can go up and get the ball. So he succeeded in that role. I mean, for week five on last year, he was the number two receiver in PPR. So we know what his ceiling is. So to me, you kind of have to rank him in this range just because we saw what he can do. But like I said before, there are just so many questions about quarterback and what that offense will look like now that they actually have real running backs on the roster. Maybe they can actually run the ball. They've added so many people on defense. Maybe their defense is actually good and they don't have to chuck the ball so much every game. There's there's just so many things to question about Devontae Parker that I'm just not ready to draft to where anybody else is drafting him. Yeah, I'm with you, right? Like it seems like there's a large amount of what if questions in regard to Devonte Parker, uh, almost as if there's like six or seven very important make or break what ifs and the chances that four of those resolve in his favor are not that likely to me. Uh, so kind of like I had referenced before my willingness to take AJ green, if I'm going to go for a risky option because of how high AJ green ceiling ought be massively trumps Devonte Parker and if I'm not looking to take a risky option, I know that I've got some safe bet options like Stefan Diggs who are in the same range. So there just hasn't been a point where I've looked at a draft board and decided that Devontae Parker is the way to go at this particular spot. I almost feel like he ought be like an eighth or ninth round receiver, but he continuously goes in round six or round seven and more power to the people that take him there. I'm just not one of them. Yeah, I'm with you. Our next receiver is Marvin Jones, who is ECR 34, JWB 28. Yeah, is there a guy that is loved more by the JWB fantasy football <laughs> podcast than Marvin Jones? Why? How many years out of the past five do you think we've owned Marvin Jones? Is it five? Uh, I think every it's year. At least four. It's we've for had sure shares at least four. of him every year, I'm sure. He's, he's our favorite player. <laughs> and it, every single year, he does exactly what we want out of him, which he performs as a wide receiver, too. And he's drafted as our fourth or fifth wide receiver without fail every single year. So I, I think the only thing in regards to Marvin Jones is that you have to understand that there might be matchups in which you choose to sit him and you better have some options on your bench that can be used to play him when he runs into difficult matchups that you don't want to be a part of. Uh, and if he runs into some in, some injury issues, you got to have somebody who's there to replace him. But my thing about Marvin Jones is that at the end of each season, he just finishes as a wide receiver too. 
So if you're able to play him, let's say 10 out of the 17 weeks, when you feel like the matchup is right and he's healthy, you know, that, that means that I have a wide receiver too for over half the year and I'm willing to do that. You know, I'm okay with playing Marvin Jones 12 times a year and figuring out what I'm going to do for the other five, knowing that he's going to give me a a pretty good boost when he's in and when he's healthy. Um, Again, this is another spot where we're substantially higher on him than the rest of the community. Marvin Jones goes at large in fantasy football drafts later than guys like Tyler Boyd. He's been going after people like Michael Gallup this year. Uh, He's been after the Houston duo of Brandon Cooks and Will Fuller. So Marvin Jones has been out there in the 10th round of most drafts that we've been in. And you and I prioritize getting him somewhere in round eight or round nine, which, as I said, usually works out to the fourth or sometimes even fifth receiver uh, that is on our roster. And that sort of value is just never out there that late in drafts. Like we're sitting here splitting hairs over guys like Stefan Diggs and Devontae Parker, who routinely are taken in the 60s. And their historical numbers are almost no different, if not worse, than Marvin Jones, who's going 25 picks after them like what why why is that the case yeah you know i think people are just like scared of the occasional injury and the somewhat inconsistency that he has but i think when you know what you're getting with marvin jones you're gonna want him where we have him because as you said yeah maybe you only play him for 10 weeks out of the year but that's okay with the draft value or draft capital you're using to get him. And he will win you those weeks. I think he's one of the only receivers in this area who has just plain old week winning potential. He has those three touchdown games. He has those, you know, 30, 35 point fantasy weeks that he wins you a week where some of these other guys don't have those kind of weeks in them. And I think that's one of my favorite things about him is if you just know how to use him, he will win you weeks. Yeah, and you look for the right opportunity to play and to utilize him, and it, it's not that hard. I guess maybe that's another thing that we don't talk about enough with Marvin Jones is that sometimes you look at boomer bust guys like Devontae Parker and sometimes like Stefan Diggs, and you try and figure out, is this the right matchup? Is, is Josh Allen going to be able to have the time to withstand defensive pressure roll to his right and throw the ball 38 yards through the air to hit Stefan Diggs on the run with that particular secondary, right? Like Marvin Jones, it's never that difficult. It's just, is this an elite secondary? No. Are they playing in the dome? Yes. All right. Well then I'm getting double digit points out of Marvin Jones this week. Let me go ahead and plug him into my lineup. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than that with Marvin Jones, especially with Kenny Galladay running around on the other side and opening up more space for him. When Matt Stafford's healthy, he becomes even a better option. Uh, But I've still seen him be serviceable even with other quarterbacks through the years as well when Stafford hasn't been available. So he poses a lot less risk to me than I think most people think he has uh it just is another name he falls in that like jarvis landry sort of mode you know he robert woods where they're just not sexy names but you draft them and then at the end of the year they paid you back significantly better than where you took them and that's all i want when we hit this stage of the draft yeah i I think with marvin jones it's just expectations if you know what you're getting you're going to be happy with what you get if you use him correctly 
Our next receiver is T.Y. Hilton, who's ECR 26, JWB 29. It's a really interesting one. I mean, it's a different quarterback. It should be almost like a new offense. He ought be healthy. I, I, if he can return to what we've seen from him a few years ago, he has the potential to be a low-end wide receiver one or a very stable wide receiver two. I just can't really shake the feeling that I'm not overly comfortable with T.Y. Hilton. So I don't know, man. I guess I kind of don't really have the faith in him that I do in somebody like A.J. Green, and I have a hard time almost pinpointing exactly why I feel that way, but I do worry a little bit, I guess, about what the offense is going to look like and how much they're going to throw the ball. The offensive line is very good. They ought be able to run as much as they choose. Uh, and if it isn't quite right, the connection between he and Philip Rivers, this could be a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, and I do think that one thing that kind of dissuades me even more from Hilton is that when he has bad weeks his bad weeks like are zeros through the years his good weeks are great but his his bad weeks are even worse than that amari cooper stat that we gave from last week where cooper's had what did we say like 40 percent of his games he had single digit ppr points like unless i'm really misconstruing the facts here at some point like when hilton has bad games like they're goose egg bad and I don't know if I'm willing to do that with all the other names that are in this position. But there has to be some reason why, despite not always being healthy, I can remain high on A.J. Green and low on T.Y. Hilton. What do you think about why that might be? I think you kind of touched on it in that because Philip Rivers is there, that this is going to be kind of a new offense in a way. And the bigger, biggest reason why I feel that way is because T.Y. Hilton doesn't really match the kind of receiver that Philip Rivers has a historic affinity towards. You know, he's like the guys like Vincent Jackson and Mike Williams and Keenan Allen who are a little bit bigger bodied receivers. And T.Y. Hilton is not that at all. They also drafted Michael Pittman Jr. this year. And Paris Campbell is coming back from injury who they drafted last year. Both of them are second round picks. I kind of feel like T.Y. Hilton could get just lost in the mix here. You know, uh, shortened offseason, new QB, doesn't really fit the type of wide receiver that QB has normally liked as much. I just think there's a really good possibility that he just has the worst year of his career. Yeah, you know, I can buy into that. So I don't know. I just don't necessarily know that that's worth it for me. Um, I also kind of have just a little bit of a hesitation because I do think that the potential that he has a wonderful year coupled with his name as a very, very good fantasy asset from just a few years back has maybe inflated his draft stock a little bit more than I'd, I'd like it to be. Uh, again, right. The reason why we pick these guys for this episode is because they have shown that they are going to be available at round six or later. Hilton barely makes the cutoff there. DJ Shark is the one guy we're discussing in this episode that has been going in the sixth round or higher of most drafts. After him, McLaurin's going at 61, Hilton's going at 62, and Stefan Diggs is going at 63. 
So every single other name that we're going to discuss from here on out for the rest of the episode, including a guy like Marvin Jones that we just talked about before this, are going uh, almost a round, if not two or three rounds after where Hilton is going. And I'd rather wait and maybe take my shot on somebody like AJ Green that I can get 15 picks later than T.Y. Hilton, when at the end of the day, they're both older wide receivers with big names that are in offenses that they've produced for in the past. You know, if I'm going to run that narrative out there, I can do it in a less expensive way than going after Hilton. Yeah, I I think the hope with Hilton is that he's a very good deep threat. He has been a very good deep threat through his career. And Philip Rivers is a guy who's not afraid to just throw the ball downfield without much regard for what's happening. So, you know, maybe they do end up having a connection that way. And we have seen T.Y. Hilton perform as a low-end one, high-end two before. Mm -hmm. Our next receiver is Michael Gallup, who is ECR 32, JWB 30. Are you ready for a bold but not so bold predict for the show? I am ready. Michael Gallup leads the Cowboys in targets and receptions this year, and it's not close. That is fairly bold. I don't think so. Really? (laughs) I mean, historically, he gets more looks than Amari Cooper. Uh, He he ought to be a guy. Like, we've talked so much about breakout candidates and people who are ready to take a step forward. Now, here's a guy who's put in a lot of work in an offense that is stable with a good line with a quarterback that he has a connection with. Michael Gallup ought to be able to take a large step forward in terms of production more so than anyone else that I think we've discussed so far today. Chances are he could have more production percentage-wise increase than someone like DK Metcalf would. This is the most prolific offense in the league. People forget that the Cowboys are the most prolific offense in the league. All they do is go out and run a high volume of plays. They throw the ball constantly and Gallup, in my opinion, again, is going to get more targets than anyone else within this offense. I think that people want to knock him down slightly because one, Amari Cooper is a massively known quantity. They had to trade for him, pay him a lot of money, do all those sort of things. And when you see a team do something like that, you want to almost diminish their other assets But statistically, what we've seen from Michael Gallup does not bear out that you should diminish him in any way because of what's being done with Amari Cooper. Two, there's worry about somebody like CeeDee Lamb coming in and cutting into his targets. Now, that's not going to happen because Randall Cobb and Jason Witten are both gone. I think you could easily, Wyatt, and I wish we had the numbers right in front of us here, but I think you can speak to this idea even better than I can. It's unlikely that all of the targets that went to Randall Cobb and Jason Witten last year will go to CeeDee Lamb and Blake Jarwin, right? It's it's a pretty safe bet that at the end of this season, CeeDee Lamb and Blake Jarwin's targets will still leave some left on the table based on how often Witten and Randall Cobb saw the ball last year. So where are the rest of those targets going to go? Even if they're equally distributed, that still means more opportunity for Michael Gallup than we've seen in years past. So why not expect him to have a massive, massive breakout season? So uh, he's a sleeper for me as a guy who I actually think is going to be in that DJ Moore, 
Chris Godwin, Kenny Galladay conversation next year when we're doing this again and we're looking at wide receivers who are going in uh, the end of the second or the beginning of the third round. Uh, I I actually think that this is going to be the last year that Michael Gallup is drafted behind Amari Cooper. I'm all aboard the hype train for him. I think especially in leagues that are PPR and half PPR, this is one of the guys that you want to get on your team late and just reap the rewards of what he's going to do in that offense. Uh, there is some truth to what you're saying. I mean, Gallup did actually average almost a target more per game than Amari Cooper did last year. But I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Cooper was battling through injuries most of the year. But I, you know, I want to play a little game with you here because you seem to be very high on Michael Gallup. But who would you rather have, Gallup or Metcalf? At this point, I think that if it is a standard league, or a league where I'm paid out more for touchdowns, I would probably have to take Metcalf. If it is a half PPR or a PPR league, I think I would rather pass Metcalf in favor of taking a quarterback tight end or adding to my running back depth so that I can take Michael Gallup later. Would you rather have Gallup or AJ Green? Exactly the same as... Uh, before I think Gallup I'd rather, I'd rather wait and have Gallup. I would take Gallup over McLaurin in any scoring format. Okay. So that's, so that's really where he is for you. So really he's wide receiver 23 for you. He's- yeah. I, I mean, I do. I think he emerges massively this year. I think that Dax is going to continue to have to throw the ball. I think that Cooper's targets per game are pretty consistent. Right. I don't think that Amari Cooper's role within the Cowboys offense is going to be 20 to 25 percent larger than what it is already shown to be thus far. And I do think that the targets that went to guys who are no longer there. Right. In fantasy football, we call this vacated targets. I think the vacated targets in the Cowboys offense are more likely to go to Gallup than they are to go to any other scenario. I don't think that CeeDee Lamb sees the amount of targets that Randall Cobb saw last year, and they have to go somewhere. And Gallup, to me, is a guy who is open that Prescott likes to throw to in any down, in any situation. And that spells out an extremely good PPR, half PPR sort of season for Michael Gallup. So I'm higher on him than the rest of the community. You're slightly higher on him than everybody else. It's just the more and more that we have done this year, the more and more I've become a fan of him. Uh, And I love where he's going in drafts. He's a very, very cheap asset for me that I almost think is matchup proof with my view of him and how many targets I think he's going to get per game, right? Like the notes are right in front of me that last year he was seeing eight eight targets per game. I don't think there's any way that at the end of this year, he saw fewer targets per game than what he saw last year. So if you're telling me that Michael Gallup in this Cowboy offense that can get near the red zone and have a ton of space open for him to do work, that he's going to see the ball two to three times every quarter, sign me up for that right now. I, I think I see things a little bit differently with the way the targets could be distributed, but I I mean, you are making a very compelling case for, for Gallup here. Well, where are they going to go? Well, I, I do think that Jarwin and Lamb can have the same amount of targets that uh, Witten and Cobb had last year. And I do think that Amari Cooper sees a little bit more targets this year, but you know, that's just me. But 
let's keep moving along. Our next wide receiver is Tyler Boyd, ECR 28, JWB 31. Yeah, that's your boy. This is your personal version of Marvin Jones here. I, I like Tyler Boyd. I'm not quite as high on him as you are. Uh, I also think it's very interesting that despite what we think is very rational love for Tyler Boyd, we're lower on him than the rest of the community. ECR has him at 28. We're three spots below that at 31. Uh, he's got perfectly fine numbers from the past few years. I just don't know, and this is my issue, my sticking point that I can't come off of. I don't know what Tyler Boyd's ideal season is. Is there any world in which Tyler Boyd finishes as a top 10 fantasy wide receiver? I don't see that happening. Not that high. I mean, like, what would that even look like for him? Is Tyler Boyd a reasonable candidate to score 10 touchdowns in a season? Probably not. Is he going to score eight touchdowns in a season? I think he could, yeah. But that's like we're stretching it. Seven yeah. or eight touchdowns, and we're starting to push it. So I wonder, like, where does it come from for him? And it, What is it about Tyler Boyd that's really carried the water for him when he's had good seasons and had good games? And it's a lot of what, like, seven catch, 80-yard sort of performances and I worry that in this particular version of the Cincinnati offense where you ought have a healthy AJ Green um they added someone is it Higgins or am I thinking of a different offense T Higgins yeah yeah they added T Higgins they have AJ Green Joe Mixon is only getting better and we don't know for sure what we're going to see out of Burrow but our expectation is that Burrow's going to make it easier for people like Green and Mixon to have good numbers. So I wonder like, where is it for Tyler Boyd? If what I'm hoping he gives me on a week to week basis is six to nine catches of 70 to 80 yards so that he has that extremely good PPR production. Is it more likely that he has a great week and ends up with the touchdown? Or is it more likely that it goes the other way and it's a four or five catch game for 50 or 60 yards? In every which way I look at it, if my expectation of Tyler Boyd is you're going to give me eight catches for 80 yards every week, and that's going to get me about 15 to 16 points, I think it's substantially more likely that most of those weeks are below that, not above that. And if that's the case, he has no ceiling. He just becomes a very safe, dependable option to not give you a zero. And I think that there's too many other people that go in this range of drafts like Marvin Jones and Jarvis Landry, who we haven't got to yet, that can offer me that safety. But I don't have as much question about whether or not this is going to be the year that their role within the offense transforms radically. And I do have that question about Tyler Boyd and Joe Burrow and what their connection might be like. For me with Tyler Boyd, it's the fact that you're basically guaranteed to get wide receiver two production or about wide receiver produ two production every week. He's kind of like Marvin Jones in the way that you're going to get a wide receiver two. It's just they do it differently. Marvin Jones, you know, big week here and there, some mm -hmm. low weeks here and there. Tyler Boyd, he's just going to give you consistent production. You're like you said, he doesn't have a big ceiling. I, I concede that point to you. I believe that too. But his last two years, he's averaged over a thousand yards and six touchdowns. And 
Joe Burrow loves his slot receiver, at least based on what he did in college. He loves his slot receiver, and Tyler Boyd is primarily a slot receiver. So, I, See, I that still works think- really well for him. I think if there's a ceiling to be found there, it's the slot connection that Joe Burrow has appeared to have from his collegiate days. It's just I worry why that what I'm looking at with Tyler Boyd is I flex him for five weeks and it's not. 12 12 18 12 10 it's 12 12 6 8 9 and that's not quite good enough for me for what i'm looking for out of like this particular position i don't necessarily know that i take a lot of safety guys at wide receiver like i kind of like to have very safe running back options but then i want wide receivers who are going to go out and win weeks for me I think the ideal fantasy strategy is to know that you're not going to win or lose at the running back position, that your running backs are going to go out and give you the 10 to 20 points each week that you need to be in the contest. And that if you're playing your tight end and quarterback matchups well enough, you're going to have at least one wide receiver who explodes and wins a week for you. And Boyd is not necessarily that guy for me. Especially because, like I said, my my fear is that more of his weeks trend below the average than above the average. And I'm I don't want to be on that like I don't want to be on the Tyler Boyd train this year if that proves to be the case. I, I think it's about roster construction and when you're drafting. I like I like Tyler Boyd in this space because if at this time I want a safe receiver, that's the guy I can go to to guarantee myself, you know, those 12 PPR points a week or whatever. And that, that's why I like him and why I have him ranked here. Well, let's stay on that, though. Like, can't you do that with Landry? Like, what? why the risk of Tyler Boyd to do that? Well, you say Jarvis Landry, but over the last two years, Tyler Boyd has been more efficient than Landry has. Well, I don't know that necessarily everybody understands that. Like, I think the fantasy community at large probably views Landry as a safer option than they do Boyd. That may be true, but the numbers don't say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like, and you have owned him a lot. That's part of the reason why I want to grill you a little bit on your love of Tyler Boyd is because I do feel like that's a guy who you were singing his praises last year going into drafts. And those of us that listened to you, it worked out pretty well. I just kind of figured that you would be uh, way, way more on the Tyler Boyd train than me. Moving on to our next receiver, we've got Marquise Brown, who's ECR 33, JWB 32. Yeah, so I I don't really understand the infatuation with Marquise Brown. I think this is maybe one where you have to step in and kind of carry the water for people who want to draft Marquise Brown. I view this as the Baltimore Ravens wide receiving version of, well, I'm going to draft Lavian Bell because someone has to get all the work in the Jets offense. Like I view Marquise Brown as the guy where people are like, well, listen, like Lamar Jackson can't run every play. So he's got to throw it. And that that's inevitably going to mean that Marquise Brown is going to have some games where he just goes off. And I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know exactly how the Ravens offense is going to look here in year two. I know that Marquise Brown started out really hot last year, but then had some weeks that were just terrible. So I can't really get my mind around him being in this range of the draft. But every single time I look, he's consistently going 
round six, seven, eight around all these other guys that we're discussing in the episode today. And I don't have nearly as much love for him as I do for almost all the other names. I think with Marquise Brown, it's about potential. He only had 71 targets last year, but he had seven touchdowns and he was playing most of last year injured. He is technically the number one receiver on that team, although I would say that Mark Andrews is the actual number one receiver, but he's the number one wide receiver on the Ravens. And maybe they throw the ball more this year. Maybe the 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 run game isn't as successful as it was last year and they have to throw the ball more. And Marquise Brown is able to garner a lot of targets. I I'm not that faithful in it. I have him ranked here because the potential is there. I'm just, I just think there's a low chance of that potential. Yeah. And I'm not huge, not huge on guys that I don't think are high percentage favorites to finish close to the ceiling that I want out of them. Um, but I, you know, it just, it struck me cause I haven't really been big on Marquise Brown all off season or going into these drafts. And I didn't think you were either, but lo and behold, we still have him one spot higher in our rankings than what he was in the expert consensus ranking. So it, it this is one that shocked me. I, I kind of thought we were going to be three, four, five numbers below where the experts were on him and we really aren't. And I, I haven't really been able to figure out exactly why that's the case for him. Moving on to our next receiver, we've got Jarvis Landry, who's ECR 29, JWB 33. Yeah, so we've done a lot of talking about safe options to have at wide receiver. Uh, and I do think that Jarvis Landry traditionally is a name that will consistently outperform where he's drafted. Uh, I also think that this is probably the year that that starts to change. And that's the reason why we're lower on him than what he is in most expert rankings. I don't think that the volume of work in the Cleveland offense is there for Landry to be an odds-on favorite to return his value, right? So a lot like we've been discussing with guys like Tyler Boyd, you're taking Landry as the 30th receiver off the board because you're hoping that he finishes in the teens or in the, the low 20s and you got a good return on your investment for him, and you're not really looking to use him each week. You're just hoping the six to eight times a year that you play him, you can do it in a right spot and that you maximize what you're getting out of him. I don't think that you're going to be able to do that this year. I'm concerned about what's going on with him uh, off the field, right? He was on the pup list, at least here at the beginning of the preseason. Uh, I think we've talked extensively when we discussed OBJ about how we don't know how often the Browns are going to be passing the ball, that they ought to rely very, very, very heavily uh, on Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt in the running game. And I guess maybe the bulk of my issues with Landry for people who are not intimately familiar with the Browns is that I really worry that in a lot of scenarios where in years past Jarvis Landry would have caught the football, that now you also have Austin Hooper in the middle of the field. You may also have Njoku in the middle of the field for some of these routes as well. And you also have the option of Kareem Hunt coming out of the backfield. And all of those things kind of make me feel like this is the year where his opportunity is low enough that he's not able to return for you the value of where you drafted him. Yeah, I I think you kind of nailed it there. It, there's just maybe too many mouths at this point. You know, the last couple of years or the his first two years in the Cleveland offense, 
he had to be relied upon. Even after they got OBJ, he, they had to rely upon him. And Joku was hurt. They didn't really have anyone else to catch the ball outside of uh, outside of him and Odell Beckham. But now, you know, this is kind of a complete offense in terms of weapons. OBJ's there. He's supposed to be fully healthy this year. They signed Austin Hooper in Joku's back. Kareem Hunt, like you spoke of. I, I'm afraid that there's enough other guys who would run similar routes or provide similar value to the offense that Landry could lose a lot of work this year. And he may still have flex value, but I think that the years of him being, you know, a wide receiver too may be gone. And like you pointed out, he started out on the pup for, for training camp. He's recovering from the hip surgery. So, I mean, it's possible he doesn't even start the season. Yeah, and I definitely can't risk that when we're still in the first 10 rounds of a draft here. Um, but I do really think, like, I think Landry is a great football player. And I think he does a lot of little things that go unnoticed. So I do feel like this this is probably the year where the fantasy numbers are not there. But maybe we see at the end of each week that the four passes for 45 yards that Landry had were all massive third down catches that turned into first downs and kept the offense rolling, right? Like I I think that he has a critical role to play within the Browns offense and that he is a leader for the franchise, but I don't think that the way in which those talents will be shown to us will be fantasy football relevant. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense that he, he, he will. This is probably the year where he's a better, just straight up NFL receiver, or or have more value as an NFL receiver than he does as a fantasy receiver. Moving on to our next receiver, Julian Edelman, who's ECR thirty one and JWB thirty four. Yeah, I'm actually going to advocate that we move him up in the rankings. Uh, I do think that Edelman should be higher than Landry. I do think he should be higher than Marquise Brown. Uh, and I think about 31, where we have Tyler Boyd, is the correct spot for Edelman for this year. Uh, and the reason that I think I've grown higher on him in the past couple of weeks, and I can't believe that I'm going to say this in a format that's going to be recorded and listened to by people in the future, but I can't come up with anybody in NFL football that is more likely to be a king of garbage time this year than Julian Edelman. He's going to see so many targets at the end of games that are lost that could even lead to touchdowns when the defense is kind of just willing to let you get in there towards the end. And that fascinates me, but I honestly think that that's his role. It's not as if Cam Newton is going to be able to just sling the ball downfield to Nikhil Harry constantly, right? Like there's no way that the offense is going to be able to operate in that fashion. Um, I think you and I have talked a lot on this show about guys like James White being involved in the offense so that they can block as needed and release to catch passes. I think Julian Edelman is going to be a quick release for Cam Newton in games where the Patriots are feeling the pressure, where he he ought to be able to establish a very quick connection with Edelman. And maybe that's also part of the reason why I'm grown higher on him. Because as I look at all the other pieces and parts of the Patriots offense, and I start to consider what that offense is going to look like with Cam Newton under center and no preseason games to get ready with, 
I think that in all likelihood, Julian Edelman and James White are the guys that Newton will be able to quickly establish rapport with because of how much they know about the offense and what their roles and routes look like within that offense. So I do think that Edelman's going to have a ton of targets and a ton of receptions. I don't necessarily think it's always going to be for a lot of yardage and for a lot of great numbers, but I think you're going to see something out of Edelman that we have not seen in years past, which is Edelman goes out and has solid games for three quarters. And then the Patriots do nothing other than run the ball up the middle and punt for the fourth quarter and they play defense. And I think we're now on the other side of that. So I'm trying to ask myself if I saw about 80% of Julian Edelman for the first three quarters, but I knew he was going to get used heavily throughout the whole game. And in the fourth, what would that look like? And it's kind of adding up to me as a very valuable PPR and half PPR sort of receiver. So I don't know how you feel about that, but I definitely think there's games this year where Edelman has like 10 catches for 62 yards, which is a perfectly fine PPR game. If he happens to have like a touchdown at some point in there too, now he's just exploded. And the Patriots can do that while losing by three scores. I don't know if I agree that there's going to be all this garbage time for the Patriots. I think you're probably lower on them as a team than I am. I I know they've had all these opt-outs and they've lost some serious pieces on the defense, but I I tend to side that, you know, the greatest football coach of all time will figure out a way to make sure that the team is fine. With that said, I do still think that Julian Edelman is going to see plenty of targets. I'm just worried about how efficient he'll be with those targets with Cam Newton there now that they don't have the same kind of connection that Edelman and Brady had, especially because a lot of Edelman's work in the past has been about timing and option routes that he has drilled with Brady over the years where they just know where the other person is going to be and what the other person is thinking. And Edelman and Cam Newton aren't going to be able to have that kind of rapport, at least not to start the season. No, that's 100% true that there's no way that the exact timing of those routes are going to be down. I just think that like even if Belichick has to change his role a little bit, and I think this is probably where we differ. When I do that thought experiment, what I come up with is that Belichick's going to have to look at the assets in front of him and say, I need to make sure that Julian Edelman does X, Y, and Z so that he can be available to Cam Newton I can't just let Brady and Edelman go out and figure it out on their own like I have in years past because I trust that what they come up with will work. So when I'm trying to figure out like where's Belichick going to go to get this offense working, Edelman and White are the two guys that I keep coming back to. So for where he is in the draft, right? Like I'm not taking Edelman as a guy who I think is a wide receiver too. Like we're talking about someone who I'm going to flex in some weeks but not flex in others. And I like him, you know, a lot more than I think I did two weeks ago as the opt-outs have happened. And I've considered my feelings on him. I mean, that is interesting. I think maybe we'll have to revisit him at some point. You know, it's you bring up some good points. So I think I think it is is, it is a player that we're going to have to talk about more. Uh, Going to our next guys, I'm actually going to talk about two people here because I think it's important to do so with who they are. And that's Will Fuller and Brandon Cooks. Will Fuller is ECR 36 and JWB 35. Brandon Cooks is ECR 35 and JWB 37. Yeah, like, so what do they do in the offenses that are different? Are they not just the same player, one on the left, one on the right? I I think that's pretty much correct. So I don't really know. I, I don't know who I prefer more. 
I, I would like to think that Will Fuller is poised to have just an amazing season, but I think at any point Will Fuller's poised to play four games a year. So what do I do with that? I I tend to think that Will Fuller is like a more volatile version of Marvin Jones, where he has this giant week winning potential, but you're only going to have him so often. And in Will Fuller's case, it's less often than Marvin Jones. Brandon Cooks, I it's it's a mystery to me, his career. He's been a great receiver over the years. He somehow just keeps continued to get traded all over the place. He had a thousand yards and averaged seven touchdowns a year from 2015 to 2018. He's had a thousand yard season on three different teams. It, it's just weird to me that he keeps being shipped off like this. I, I I don't know if there's something to that, and I I think that's somewhat reflected in his ranking. Uh, uh, Will Fuller already has a relationship with Sean Watson, so that's why to me he's ranked higher. Is that they already have a connection that we know and we've seen, whereas Brandon Cooks and Deshaun Watson don't. But I mean, would I be surprised if Brandon Cooks is a number two receiver in fantasy this year because he actually plays and Will Fuller doesn't? No, not at all. All right, so a couple notes there. First and foremost, I've heard and read this exact same argument about the rapport between Watson and Cooks. How many offenses and quarterbacks has Brandon Cooks been with long enough to establish really good rapport? One? Not enough time uh, in New England? Yeah, not enough one. Time I'll give you the Saints. Sure. So let's say that you give me the Saints. Was he not viable from a production standpoint, both in New England and with the Rams? He, he was up until last year, but that was concussions. Who's a better quarterback, Goff or Watson? I, I don't think there's any competition there. That's obviously Watson. So for me, that kind of negates that particular issue, or at least brings it to where it's a wash in terms of comparing him and Will Fuller. Uh, so now let's switch gears a little bit. Will Fuller. At the end of this year, Wyatt, let's just say someone's going to give you a million dollars if you get this question right. Are you wagering your one million dollars, true or false, that if you pick four games out of the 16 games that the Texans play this year, 75% of Will Fuller's production will fall in those four games? I, I, I think that is true. Right? It, it Doesn't it feel like that's an obvious question? If you're going to wager a million dollars on whether or not four games determine 75% of Will Fuller's value, almost everyone in the community is going to say, yeah, absolutely, sign me up for true. He'll probably only play eight or nine games. And, <laughs> and out of those eight or nine games, three of them are going to be explosions. And at the end of the year, if he finishes as wide receiver 20, you will have four weeks where he finished as a wide receiver one and 12 weeks where he was unplayable. Are you going to play him every single week on the off chance that you have the 25% shot at him blowing up? Or are you going to sit him on your bench and watch him go off every third or fourth week and be upset that you didn't play him, but then forgive yourself because you just watched him go for zero twice in a row? Look, I mean, he's being drafted as a wide receiver four for a reason. I mean, he's obviously been very unreliable so far in his career. It's just that when he plays, he is pretty darn productive. And 
maybe this is the year. You know, that he's <laughs> he's in the range where it's okay to take a shot, I think. You know, what what if he does play even just 14 games? I he could end up being a high-end wide receiver too. Yeah, it wouldn't but be that hard. We're back with my issue with this whole debate. If everything that you just said there about Will Fuller is accurate and why, I think it's 100% accurate. This discussion is why he's being drafted as a wide receiver for. None of that applies to Brandon Cooks. Brandon Cooks just consistently finishes as a wide receiver too. Why is Brandon Cooks in the discussion this far back? And I cannot figure it out. I think you're right. I think that people in football have went, we must all be missing something. He got traded, then he got traded, then he got traded. Like, there's got to be something wrong yeah, with there the has to be something. that we don't know about. I honestly just think that the role he plays in offenses related to the amount of money that he is getting paid on his contract makes it a good business decision for an NFL front office to include him as the most attractive asset in a trade. I don't think that any of the reason that he's moved around has anything to do with his ability to produce. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite. I think that the reason why people are willing to take Brandon Cooks in deals is because they're able to look at measurables that not even we understand and determine that he is quarterback proof and offense proof that you can plug and play him in any offense in any situation and he'll be a productive NFL receiver. But the saints moved him specifically because they needed something. And he was the guy that called to the Patriots. The Rams took him because the Patriots needed something from the Rams and vice versa. Like, I think it's just a case that when you look around at the rest of your team and you determine, like, I need that stud on defense. Like, what can I do that's going to get Organization X to give me that guy? Brandon Cooks is a name that comes up in those discussions where the other franchise on the other side of it thinks, well, we're getting a wonderful asset because we're getting Brandon Cooks. I don't think that any of it should be tied to his fantasy value, but it seems from how the community views him to have been tied to his fantasy value in what I view as an unfair manner. If Brandon Cooks were being drafted two rounds higher than where he's going right now, and we were discussing him at the end of last week's episode where we talked about Cortland Sutton, Keenan Allen, I don't think I would bat an eye at Brandon Cooks being in that discussion. But here he is barely making the cutoff of our wide receiver second episode. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe maybe he's a guy that we're going to have to revisit again. I, I still tend to believe that if uh, Fuller is healthy, that Brandon Cooks is the number two. And I do have enough questions about him that I want to rank him back here. But yeah, we may, maybe we need to talk more about him. Well, I'll, I'll say this, like, I think that Wyatt and I have ended up with Brandon Cooks as the fifth receiver on our team in about 80% of the mock drafts that we've done at this point. And, I, you know, I, I think you're right. Like, I think we do need to revisit him as a player, but I think it's also worth noting to everybody else who listens to us here that you know, like you and I are very high on Brandon cooks. He's only here at the end of this episode because of his expert ranking and his position in drafts. But you and I are ending up with quite a few shares of him from what we've seen thus far. 
The last receiver we're going to talk about today is Debo Samuel, who is ECR 44, JWB 38. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'll let you do most of the work here on Debo, but he is a, a league winner, is he not? I mean, this is a guy that we were hoping would have a really, really good, solid stat line, especially in PPR leagues this year. But I think his injury has now dropped him to the point that if you're willing to understand that you might not be using him until week three or week four, for example, you have a huge asset on your hands. Um, But I do think I want to make clear to everybody who's listening that there is no talk that Debo Samuel is not available to play in week six, seven, eight, right? This is a very early season injury. We expect him to be ready for weeks two or three if he's not ready for the opener, and he could be ready for the opener. Based on the timeline of when he broke his foot, he could be ready for week one. If everything goes right, he could be ready for week one. I'm expecting him to maybe play week two or three because the 49ers don't need him. They don't need him to win. They're a good enough team that they can play without him. They shouldn't rush him back, and I don't believe they will because they're a smart team. But, as you said, he could be a league winner. He's being drafted as a wide receiver five, but he's likely a wide receiver two once he comes back. His last eight games in 2019, he had 35 catches for 575 yards and two touchdowns and then ran for over another 100 yards and two touchdowns. That 16-game pace is almost 1,400 yards and eight total touchdowns. I, I think that he is being drafted too late because of the worries of the injury, but I think the 49ers will handle the injury properly to make sure he is ready when he comes back, and when he comes back, he will continue to play, and when he's playing, he will be very valuable for you. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that some questions about him that made him a wide receiver four in the first place are questions about how often San Francisco is going to throw the ball to begin with and what his opportunity will look like. Um, I do think, Wyatt, that there are a lot of maybe more casual players that look at Debo Samuel, and when they see his name and his production, they're looking at just his receiving statistics, and that makes them shy away from him a little bit. Uh, I think you have to kind of know what you're doing to look at his role in that offense, both as someone who rushes and receives the ball uh, and understand that they do pretty much whatever they can to get the ball in his hands and that that makes him more valuable than what his draft position normally is. Um, I just think that for me, right, if you look at your team and you think to yourself, I have such a nice team that I've drafted in front of me that I probably wouldn't even play a healthy Debo Samuel week one or week two. Then you're the type of team that should feel comfortable taking a flyer on him as your fourth or fifth wide receiver. And I think that's part of the reason why you and I are particularly high on him. In most instances, because everyone is healthy at the beginning of the year, we hope, Debo Samuel wouldn't even be a guy that we would flex the first two or three weeks of the season. Samuel's a guy who would sit at the end of our bench. We'd start using during bye weeks. And if halfway through the season, it's apparent that he has to be played every week, he's worked his way into our lineup. So for me in particular, I don't think that his injury is going to affect how I would have used him anyway 
Therefore, it doesn't have any impact on his draft stock to me. But because the rest of the community has viewed it the other way, I'm now able to get him a round or two rounds later than where I was willing to take him before. And that's huge. Yeah. Even if you draft Debo Samuel at where we have him ranked at 38, which is much higher than the expert consensus ranking, you're still using very small draft capital to get him. And you can afford to then just let him wait on your bench until he's healthy and you can use him. Yeah, right. Like if he's not healthy, he's not healthy. If I drop him, I drop him and it doesn't cost me hardly anything to do it. But you make an interesting point there. So let's check it out. In PPR drafts, where he's going higher than what he's going to go in half PPR standard, right? He's going at 86. So he's in the ninth round of most drafts. Uh, Brandon Cooks is going at 89, and Will Fuller is going at 90. So he's going in that exact same range. And then the wonderful Marvin Jones is back there at at 94 in the 10th round. So I, I do think as a ninth or 10th round receiver, that's an incredibly powerful option that you could get who has touchdown potential that I don't think I'm seeing from most other people that are in this particular class of receivers. I think that's going to about wrap it up for this episode. Everyone, make sure you join us next week when we do our quarterback breakdown in our series of positional breakdowns. We've got our Patreon that's up and running. There is extra content on there. Specifically, you can find the JWB rankings and projections on there. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at YB underscore FF. Justin's at JWill underscore FF. And the show is at JWB underscore FF. And we'll see you next time. As always, thanks for listening.